Rye Smile Films presents The Shot. And now here are your hosts, Matt and Jesse. Good evening, Rye Nation. Welcome to part two of The Shot, the best films that were never made. We are continuing on last week's episode that looked at four films that were interesting tales that never saw the silver screen. And this is part two with another four films that also never saw the silver screen. Story time was too much fun. We had to have a second week of it. Truthfully, we could do this every week for like months probably, but yeah, let's, let's continue on this train. Here's to you, Jesse. Cheers, Matt. We got a little, uh, what's this high West rye this week. Yes. Excellent. So kick your feet up. It's time for some more story time by way of rye smile films. Matt, I'm going to let you go first this week. This is a long one. I'm doing my best to keep it as clear and as concise as I can. The movie's called Smoke and Mirrors. I just want to start off with the protagonist arc and revel in what becomes a crazy bidding war for a spec script between the bachelors. That's Janet and Scott, Scott who have Batman forever fame. And we'll get to that because it's actually part of this story too. Mm-hmm. I want you to think about internal character arcs within our protagonists. And let me give you one, a disillusioned magician. Uh, To me, that is just such a preposterous place to start a story from. Like, what is the illusion, the disillusioned, like wake up one day and say, man, everything around me is fake. There is no magic. That rabbit didn't come out of my hat last night. (laughs) Like to me, that is just such a stupid, Like Hero's Quest, mm-hmm. Joseph Campbell 101, sure. the magician who has lost faith in magic. Yeah, no kidding, man. It's fake. <laughs> so let me give you that to start. Okay. And then the story is based on a true story of Houdini, but not that Houdini. The re- the Houdini that we all know is a dude named Eric Weiss. Mm-hmm. That's not his name. He take, I mean, that, that's his name. He takes the moniker of Houdini. The real Houdini is Robert Houdini. And he's the one that is actually the real life magician who has the actual surname Houdini. So it's that Houdini, not the famous Houdini, in a state of disillusionment. All right. Uh, Right. Off to a great start. How is this going to be such a hotly contested script? It's going to go to bid between Warner Brothers and Disney, but I get ahead of myself. Okay. Here's the idea. Janet and... Eric, uh, no, yeah, Janet and and Lee Batchelor pinned this in a writer's group. They found some nugget in the Robert Houdini, the real Houdini's book that was like the last chapter and said, this has got to be a story. Essentially, the crux of this is he gets commissioned by the French Foreign Legion okay. to go to Algeria to debunk a priest there that is not Islamic because they were too afraid to write him Islamic for fear that that might turn off an Islamic audience. So they made him not a colonist of the French military or an Islamic priest, just a just like a priest that is this entity that has a capable army at his disposal that he is tricked into making them think that he is all holy through a set of magical tricks. The French Foreign Legion contacts Houdini. Mm -hmm. They take him out to Algeria, and the whole premise of this is to prove his magic is fake by using Houdini's magic in an elevated platform to wrestle the people away from the the priest, the witch doctor, so that he doesn't have an army, and then the French can continue to take over Algeria. Okay. So 
a story about colonization yeah. through the power of magic from a disillusioned protagonist. Is this one of those Bob Hope movies? <laughs> I, like, I'm, there's no way that this is... Okay, yeah, it is. Yeah. So it goes to a company that's only title at that time is like a secondary credit on a league of their own through one of the bachelor's relationships. And then that person reads it and like it enough to give it to their agent. Long story short for this part, it gets into a hotly contested bidding war between Warner brothers and Disney. Okay. With a price tag of 55 million that is pitched as Lawrence of Arabia meets Indiana Jones meets romancing the stone. This is movie, movie, exotic people, swashbuckling adventure. You got it. Fun, far away locations, set pieces, castles, all that kind of stuff. Okay. So Disney ends up winning the bidding war. And essentially we're now like greenlit immediately. Not like, yeah, let's option it. Like greenlit. Get, get it going. And credit to their, their um, agent. Because, I mean, got the process going on a Friday afternoon. And basically the deal's cut by like noon on Friday to like Monday. It's basically in the bidding war and signed, sealed, and delivered by Wednesday. Greenlit, like fast-tracked, let's go. The first A-list talent that's attacked to play the part of Houdini is Sean Connery. Okay. This is right off Andrew Vajna and his relationship with him at not Karolko, Bankruptcy Company Number One, yeah. Synergy, Ooh. and the movie they did together called Medicine Man. They had like oh, the medicine. M- Mario Brothers and something else, and this. Oh but, God! But this Vajna guy has so much; he's more money than God. Yeah, bankrupts everything and just keeps on going. So Sean Connery is attached, right? I'm going to play the magician. <laughs> oh, you okay? Tongue in cheek, but you just hit the nail on the head. Yeah. He reads the script. Everyone like the script is perfect for this absurd concept that I uh, that pitched you on. Okay. And we're talking chases through mountains and showdowns at the Citadel and a, a magician showdown at the court of the high priest, just crazy, just nonsense. John Connery says, all right, I want this, but it needs to be rewritten so that the Houdini character fits me more than I fit him, which is not a statement on Sean Connery's acting ability. Mm-hmm. Like I have a range. <laughs> this isn't in my range. Can you please write this in my range? Yeah. So here goes the rewrite process. Oh boy. Over and over and over and over. By the time the rewrites are five drafts in and first draft is submitted, major talent and the production in has been attached. That is Frank Marshall and Kathleen Kennedy. Marshall to direct, Kathleen Kennedy to produce. Mm. Okay. So they're mostly happy with it again, but now that they are fresh eyes on the project, we got to go through some more writing. Mm Mm-hmm. It takes forever. And Sean Connery is such a picky guy on set about what the script will be Mm -hmm. that by the time the bachelors have finished, (laughs) Frank Marshall has left. I'm sorry. Yeah. To go do Congo. (laughs) So it's just Kathleen Kennedy. Okay. We're like two years into the process. Sean Connery says, I think I'm out too. They all leave. Basically the project is five rewrites by the same two people in with no talent attached now. So what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. The bachelors then also leave because they score the gig to go do Batman forever. Mm. So the original writing team's gone. A-list talent's gone. Like it's square a, one with a great script, I guess. Yeah. It doesn't sound great to me, but a script that's highly bitted on by everybody. I'm sure we could find it online. I'm sure. Yeah. There's 50 drafts of it. Just find one, <laughs> which is going to be part of the problem. <laughs> find here. one of 50. 
new writer dude named Tad Henning is brought on. Tad Henning is unknown with the exception. And I looked, but I couldn't quite nail this down, but I think I'm about 85% sure. Okay. He has a spec script called Blue Caribbean, which is tied to Vajna later on, which I think is the premise for... Cutthroat Island. You got it. Oh, boy. So not 100 on that, but okay. I think pretty clear that that's the case. Renning, there, there's an, an intermediate writer, which I'm not even going to waste your time with. So Henning gets the Bachelor script that's been repinned by middle writer and just looks at it and says, whoever has taken a crack at this, this is crap, and starts all over again and ends up with a <coughs> script. that It's basically the same thing. Okay. Okay. It's it. They change a few things. Sean Connery wanted his part to be a little bit beefed up, take a little bit of the Michael Douglas out of Romancing the Stone and make it a little bit more base, blah, 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 blah. Interesting that it's Michael Douglas because the project is now dead. We're in 1999. This project started in 1993. The story did. Joel Douglas purchased it. That's Michael Douglas's brother. Okay. And he purchases it for... Mike and Catherine Zeta-Jones mm. to do a new version of Romancing the Stone with them together. And this is prior to them doing Traffic together, even though they're not in a scene in that film together, they shot the movie together. Yeah. Okay, so the draft gets pared down from 140 pages to 110. And we go through some rewrites and we're still working and we have some talent attached. It comes and goes, I'm not gonna get with that until we move into another huge director that's attached, John McTiernan. Mm. <clears throat> Die Hard? Yeah. That's a little, little past his prime, though. Huh? I get 2000, yep. you know? Yeah, sure. He was going to do rollerball. <laughs> right. <laughs> so he hates it. Okay. So then he says, look, I'm not going to do anything with this. And he brings on his personal scribe, which is Leslie Dixon, no relation, mm -hmm. who wrote Pay It Forward to him and also mm -hmm. had some other work with, uh, there's some rumors, maybe some Die Hard early stuff. Okay. And she basically says... I think that I can do this, but I need to go from page one rewrite again. So I think Jeez. we're on like draft nine now. Yeah. Again, this is draft nine of the disillusioned version of Houdini that no one cared about in a colonist story based in Algeria from the Finch Foreign Legion using a disillusioned magician to debunk a high priest that uses... It's What in the fuck is... Oh, I just cursed. What in the, are we doing? <laughs> yeah. John McTiernan leaves... Leslie Dixon is fired, and a call goes to the bachelors to come back and rescue their property. Oh, my God. Mm, oh, my God. So we're almost a decade into this now, Jesse. Yeah. And there's several parts that I've left out. But yeah. for the sort of, and it's basically the story with this over and over is, and this is a really good script. Let's just rewrite the hell. Who can we get to rewrite it? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Ugh. Wow. That's Gary, that's Gary Gold. That's Gary Gold. Goldman. Goldman. That's his quote, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. About the time that McTiernan leaves, another production goes into place called The Magician's Wife, which is this exact same story with Jeffrey Rush and Kate Winslet at okay. another company. I don't even know who the hell has the owners to the, the rights to this company at this time. Um, it never sees the light of the day. And then finally, Smoke and Mirrors, which is what this is called, Draft 9, goes to Mimi Ledger, who had just directed Deep Impact and The Peacemaker. Hmm. She gets it. And she comes back and says, I don't think I could, five, 55 million to start initially. Yeah. She says, I can't make this for less than 150 million. And wow. they're already like 18 to 20 in just on script rewrites. Just paying writers. 
And not, no, not, that's the sad thing. Mm -hmm. The bachelors, when they came back the second time, signed a deal for 7.5 to redo it. But so much of the script and the title of it and the property rights were in other companies. They never saw another penny because the money went from A to pay to B to wow. C. It was crazy, right? Mm. $150 million. They're close to 20 in. Production's going to begin though. We're going to do it. Mm -hmm. This is going to happen. <clears throat> then 9-11. Yeah. No way after 9-11 that we were going to go to Algeria mm -hmm. and shoot a movie about attacking some version of any Islamic sure. faith-based group. Catherine Zeta-Jones and Michael Douglas still remain attached as talent, but mm, okay, so then the project goes to Initial Entertainment Group and they go bankrupt about the same time that The Prestige and The Illusionist are well-received by critics but don't make a penny at the box office. Mm -hmm. You can see where this is going. Yep. The Bachelors move on, for, move on again to the set for the second time to a movie, a little tiny, quaint little film called Pompeii, <laughs> um, which again is a disaster financially as a disaster movie. Sure. And SNM, Smoke and Mirrors, is exactly that, a bunch of smoke and mirrors with a ton of scripts that were mostly good that never sees the Dead on arrival. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. I like, yeah, the, the rewrite process, you know, for those that, you know, don't know what a bidding war is in Hollywood, um, it's when the major studios get involved on a writer's hot property. Some examples of that would be Kevin Williamson's script for Scream, which was who's going to pay the most for this thing because they want it so much because it's probably very high concept. Oh, this isn't though. One of the more recent ones I think that happened with, which you know, the movie was okay, but I guess the studios got all gaga for it, was that Bad Times at the El Royale screenplay was kind of the last time that I had heard of that happening. What could have been with that film? And maybe yeah. what could have been with this? I don't know. I got to tell you, I'm not sure how fired up I am to see any protagonist in a character arc that's like, I'm going to find the power of magic <laughs> in a colonist <laughs> effort to take over Algeria for the French Foreign Legion. I know what you There's mean. There's a love triangle in there. Mm -hmm. Take, I got to throw one more piece in there. Good. There's a love triangle because the Sean Connery character is, is older. And of course his wife is the magician's assistant gal. Yeah. So early on in the script, he's saved by a French foreign legion military member who's ex us, but disenfranchised with the U S too, and has a wooden hand. And there is a love triangle between that guy named Darcy. Interesting note choice of name there, Darcy. Mm -hmm. right? And Houdini and Colette, who's Houdini's wife. Okay. So in the midst of all this, we have Houdini reclaiming his masculinity through magic to hang on to his wife. Because basically so at he one point- So he doesn't lose out to the wooden hand guy? Because that's what Darcy says to him at one point in the film is like, look, man, if you go back home and you don't see this through, she's in bed with me five minutes later. Oh, this wooden hand's going to be all over her. <laughs> Splinters and all. Splintering her all up. <laughs> I'm going to take these wooden hands and I'm going to, they runneth over. Oh, Wow. Wow, huh? Crazy. Are you sad we never saw that film? I don't know. I don't know if I am either. Yeah, because th th your initial pitch on it wasn't exactly like, oh, yeah, <laughs> opening night, even though we probably would see it opening night. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe better left, better left rewritten 50 times. And dead. Let's talk about video games, Matt. Okay. Um, video game industry is almost as lucrative as the film business is. Uh, the grosses on Grand Theft Auto Five are obscene yeah. money-wise yeah. for one game. The quest to adapt game to film has been tried. You just mentioned one of them a second ago, uh, Super Mario Brothers with Bob Hoskins and John Guizamo, and that's a colossal failure. Uncharted, yeah. right? What Uncharted? Mark oh, Wahlberg my God. I, I want to see that, too. You know what I mean? Yeah. Maybe that'll happen. <laughs> but uh, 
It's it's kind of cursed. They they can't quite figure it out whether it's Resident Evil or Tomb Raider or uh, you know all the Uwe Boll garbage that he made. But if there's one property that could have hit it so big, it's got to be Halo. Talking about the Xbox's premier franchise, so you know Halo. We're looking at you know this is like 2003, 2005, trying to get a film off the ground. Proposed to be directed by Neil Blomkamp, who went on to do District Nine, Elysium, Chappie. Oh, Chappie, yeah. man. Have you ever seen that? Uh, yes. <laughs> okay, sorry, keep going. But also, I'm going to mention two films that he was tied to that are also dead that could have fit this same conversation. Looking at a budget of around $128 million, so you're going to spend quite a bit on a sci-fi epic. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. For, but for those who aren't familiar, Halo involves um, you know, this kind of interstellar uh, war between Earth and this race called the Covenant. And you play as the Master Chief, who's this kind of Spartan soldier, and he's nonverbal, so I don't know how they would do that on film. Like, have a main character who literally doesn't speak. <laughs> You'd have to kind of change that. But <coughs> this is interesting because I think Microsoft, you know, the proponents, the company that, you know, made this film, saw the, this property as such a huge money, money-making generating machine that they, they wanted to test the film water. So they started with a commissioned script by Alex Garland for $1 million dollars. Now, if that name's not familiar to you, Alex Garland is the director of Ex Machina and Annihilation. So this is a long time ago before he was a big name. So this script was actually another type of thing. It wasn't necessarily a bidding war because Halo Enough kind of sells the property. But the finished script was delivered to all the major studios by men in Spartan Halo suits. Oh, brilliant. Like, literally, like, to try help pitch it. So eventually this kind of gets around uh, to which studio wants to kind of pick this up. And something that's common in Hollywood that doesn't get talked about, sometimes two major studios will split the budget of a film. So that's what happened here. It was Universal and Fox, and Universal agreed to take on um, half the budget and Fox the other with Universal taking domestic profit shares and Fox international profit shares, which you almost kind of want to go international because there's a ton of money overseas, especially in China now. Sure. So, you know, now we're all about trying to establish talent for for this. And the first name that gets attached to this is Peter Jackson. Now, he's right off of Lord of the Rings trilogy, winning all the awards and doing all that great business that that film done. So he's prepping King Kong now at this point. So he doesn't know if he can necessarily step in to direct that, but it's kind of what Microsoft and Universal really want. So he kind of floats around to his one of his good friends, Guillermo del Toro, who was kind of doing the Hellboy stuff around this time. And then it goes on to Neil Blomkamp. Now, Neil Blomkamp, is uh, <clears throat> he was kind of a relatively unknown filmmaker. And I think this is kind of what killed the film, for Microsoft at least, because Microsoft is the umbrella. The game was designed by a smaller studio called Bungie. So they're the kind of architects of this game. They loved what Blomkamp was doing. That this, that, and if you've seen District 9, and you know that kind of aesthetic that he has, it's almost kind of guerrilla-style filmmaking. Sure. So he was going to bring this kind of raw, gritty war style to the Halo universe, and Bungie was like, man, this looks great. They were hiring concept artists, and they were designing this thing, and everyone was on board, but Microsoft was like, I don't see the commercialization of this of the way this is going. So that they're getting a little scared. Even with the success of a like built-in audience already. You would think. Sure. You know, that this had one of the most I, I just remember at that time I was just starting high school and this game was really taking off. And you know, if you had an Xbox, you were you had this game, you were playing this. It was the multiplayer alone was, you know, next to Goldeneye was kind of one of those big, big multiplayer games. 
So, you know, they're just like yours, you know, they're spending money on all these rewrites. We're spending money on design and concept and uh, some script rewrites. And we're not even, we're not <laughs> shooting a lick of film, which has to be frustrating. So it's, it's the lack of time and the investment and going with an untested director that, you know, really kind of killed this project. And Neil Blomkamp has quoted, and I'll state this, I was an untested director doing a movie that was pretty big. And I think things would have been different if Peter had been directing it um, uh, because he was one layer of removal from me. His pending availability to move forward um, was kind of what was keeping Universal. Like, maybe if this falls through, we can get Peter because he's still attached to this somehow. Um, But Neil Blancamp has gone on to say he's very gracious for Peter because um, he's the one he handpicked him for this. And because this didn't work out, Peter Jackson is actually the producer and spearhead of District 9. So it kind of worked out for Blancamp in the end. But that, that's not really the end of his story either because recently he's had some great concept art on his Instagram page. This is about three years ago of an Aliens sequel that takes place after Cameron's film. Ignores all the other garbage. And he had all this great stuff with Sigourney Weaver and Michael Bean and Lance Henriksen and Newt. And he was like, I pitched this to Fox. They're down. I talked to Sigourney, who was in Chappie. She's down. I want. We're going to get this thing going. It's dead. Because they went with Ridley Scott's you know, new version of Prometheus and Covenant. They didn't want two things happening at the same time. Which, stupid. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and then, and then he was recently tied to another film called RoboCop Returns, which was going to be a direct sequel to the Verhoeven original that ignored all the garbage, bringing Peter Weller back to play this character. That that he or that that's not dead. He's off the project though. So crazy. I think he's got some cool ideas to reinvent franchises, but they can't seem to get it off the ground. Instead, we get Terminator Dark Fate. <laughs> or Chappie. Or Chappie, yeah. I'm surprised that he's even getting a meeting after Chappie. Yeah, well, you know, well, District 9 was pretty well received. And sure. I know a lot of people that like that, and, you know, you got a lot of goodwill going your way, but it just shows, and I guess maybe that's the lesson of these podcasts, is it's, it's hard to get a movie made. <laughs> oh, man, you just said a mouthful. Yeah. For as quote unquote close as you and I think we've ever been, mm-hmm. having read these stories, and we were still the moon away, mm-hmm. man. Like we barely were at the <clears throat> launch pad. Exactly. And there's like A list talent with great scripts that everyone agrees on. And what I what seems to keep coming about in all of these stories is the person we want X isn't available because they're on another project. So Y is hired. And then when Y we're is just hired, gonna, they want to change the concept. Oh yeah. Or we're going to dick around for a little bit until that person's ready. And then we'll just kind of like unjumble all of this. And it gets so messy. And then everybody leaves. I almost feel like that's part of it too, is to keep the property in the trades and on variety and active until the chosen director is free. They just go through this infinite process of rewrites that they have no intention of ever honoring. Sure, yeah. And... That's got to be frustrating as a writer. Oh, big time. I, I I mean, I guess you're getting paid, so there is that. You're not an unemployed because every screenwriter at some point is un, unemployed. Like mm-hmm. when your gig's up, you're 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 unemployed. Yeah. But yeah, it's frustrating. Yeah. We might see a Halo movie eventually, but I think back when they were planning it, it was in its heyday. Man, everybody was talking about that franchise. It would have been goldmine, an absolute. That movie would have been a hundred million dollar opening, guaranteed. 
Well, I wonder who has the rights to Fortnite now, because that's the new version of Halo for this decade. Sure, yeah. Somebody's got to have the rights to that. Mm-hmm. Gosh, I kind of forgot about Uncharted until you mentioned it. That's a, that's an episode. Everybody in the world's been attached to that film. That's an episode for a different day. Like, that's that's becoming this. Like, it's they can't get it off the ground. Well, you know, another film that fell in this and then eventually saw the light of day was Wonder Woman. Mm-hmm. So From Eva Longoria Parker to... Joe, Joss Whedon's script and everything. You can yeah. go on and on and mm-hmm. on to even Megan Fox at one time. Sure. <sighs> yeah. What do you got? Fantastic Voyage, which is not a statement on these stories, but an actual movie. Mm. I got to give you a bit of a back history on this one before I go into the actual what didn't happen. Okay. Let's go to 1966. And based on an I Dream of Genie episode. Oh, wow. <clears throat> which essentially is we're going to shrink this group of people down and send them into the bloodstream to fight medical condition X to save person Y. Mm-hmm. That's the basic idea. Happened in 1966. And I think you'd really be fired up with this. Three big stars in 1966. Okay. Ready? Stephen Boyd. Donald Pleasance. Mm-hmm. And Raquel Welch. Yep. At that time, it's made for the largest budget in the history of science fiction. $6.5 million. If I remember, I believe that's Irwin Allen. Yes. Correct? The it ma- is. The so-called master of disaster, the Poseidon adventure, and the towering inferno. Which is actually what gained that movie the critical acclaim that it did. So 6.5 highest expense for a science fiction movie to date. Mm-hmm. Only grossed 4.5 in the box. Oh. But won three Academy Awards, which will be the first and last time we ever say that about a Raquel Welsh film. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Sadly. Um, okay, so I guess it is what it is. Mm-hmm. And... We're going to jump ahead from 1966. Okay, so there's some rumors that the movie originally was based on an Asimov story. Okay. That's not true. It's based in, strictly based on I Dream of Genie. That's crazy. Now, Asimov does have a story that he writes for the Saturday Evening Post in like a weekly installment, and that's going to become the basis for 1984. He is hired to write the sequel. Okay. He is approached by the studio executives, and they say, we like this idea, and he looks at the story, and I guess the story's okay enough, but the big problem with him is he thinks the science is just the science is just too hokey and hockneyed to where he can't pull it off. So he passes. It goes to um, another writer named Phil Farmer, and I got to tell you, I'm not a fan of this sort of story, but this sounds pretty good. So in 1984, when Asimov first got it, mm-hmm. The story was extracting an important piece of intel from a Soviet's brain with two dueling subs, an American and a Soviet sub, Hmm. with whoever claims it essentially gaining nuclear supremacy. Wow. So it's a race against time in the Soviet spy's body to get this stuff. (laughs) That's okay. That sounds good. That's a decent... That sounds wild. In 1984? Yeah, very apt. In that year, mm-hmm. Cold War primit. Like, yeah. I think that kind of works. Yeah, okay. But he thought the science and how they shrunk him down was just so stupid. So this Phil Farmer guy gets it. That's <laughs> what he said. That's funny. I can't get past the science on this. It's bad. I'm going to pass. <clears throat> okay. So Phil Farmer uh, gets it and submits his draft to Fox. Boy, Fox. And they're, between Fox and Universal, we have had a lot of misses. And yeah. Kuroko. Yeah. Andrew Vajna. <laughs> they're the ultimate miss. Those three. Yeah. <laughs> Fox passes and they call Asimov in again. Okay. And they say, look, man, if we let you change the science to what you want, will you do it? And he says, yes. So you've got a major science fiction player drafting mm, kind of on spec the story for Fantastic Voyage Part 2. 
The problem... Fantastic or voyage. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. So it essentially is what I told you it is, but the destination is in the brain. Okay. And supposedly from everything that is said and done in 1987, the draft is finished. And the big difference in this is that the American Soviets end up having to team up together to get it. And they realize they're sort of at the behest of the governments and sort of a way that's being manipulated. It's like Rocky and Drago, like teaming up to like kind of box someone. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's fair. Yeah. It's a good script. Okay. Everyone likes it. It's not greenlit. They just say, okay, that's a good script. And on the shelves of Fox, it goes Mm -hmm. just sitting there in development, literally a development, not hell Mm -hmm. purgatory. Yeah. Okay. Meanwhile, in 1987, Another film on a similar premise comes out. It's Inner Space, directed by Joe Dante, mm. fresh off Gremlins. Mm-hmm. Much different story, much more comedic. Who yeah. cares about the science? Let's just gag this thing to death. Have and fun we'll with it. Have fun with mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's after that, it's dead for an, a decade. Oui. It's just sitting on its shelf. And around 1995. Real quick, I don't want to. No, go. Yeah, interrupt. At, at this point, you may as well remake the original instead of trying to do a sequel to it. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Mm hmm. I always thought a sequel of Fantastic Voyage might be pretty cool. Well, and I think the based on the original idea was now gone. It was just using the title and the idea gotcha. and a new. So, okay. you, you yes, I agree with you. Okay. Jump ahead to 1996, and all of a sudden we've discovered what was a really not financial, <clears throat> beneficial, financially beneficial genre. Science fiction is killing. Mm-hmm. So... Fox, who still owns the title, is searching through the shelves in the back room for any sci-fi movie that they have to put out because they're making money. And mostly this is because of Independence Day and and T2, Mm -hmm. right? Lo and behold, they find Fantastic or Voyage, (laughs) right? Yeah. And it's greenlit immediately and given to, here we go, familiar name, Roland Emmerich Mm. and Dean Devlin. Wow. Right off of Independence Day. Fresh off of Independence Day. Okay, okay. So, okay. Yeah. Script's too old. You can't use Isaac Asimov's script. Yeah. So the X-Files writers are hired. Ooh. One of those guys named, and this actually threw me as James Wong. It's not that James Wong. Okay. Which would have been an even cooler layer of the story, but sure. it's not that James Wong. Okay. Different guy. And a guy named uh, Glenn Morgan. They submit their first draft, 142 pages. Ugh. Which is too long. Almost three hours. Yeah. Um, yeah, Jesus is, that's all I can say is that it's Jesus. That's a long script. Mm-hmm. So here's the idea. This is even better. So using the for aspiring screenwriters out there, 120, <laughs> if you're lucky and it better be really good it 120 really with a lot of white, a light of white on the page. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> They're going to base it on the assass- assassination of Anstruc- Anst- Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Ooh, okay. So check this out. This is a great premise. I think okay. this is not smoke and mirrors. This is solid. Okay. Um, China invades Taiwan and goes about acquiring that land. And so a summit is held to head off what seems to be an impending World War III led by the American president. On the way to that summit in Tokyo, he is assassinated or tried to be assassinated. And the end result of that is a blood clot in his brain. Ooh, okay. Okay, so this is where it gets really good. Okay, that's a good premise. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, kind of Manchurian candidate. I'm on board. Yeah, historical precedent, so you're not adapting it from just thin air. Mm-hmm. So 
technology is such at that time that they introduce a stream of nanobots into the president's body okay. to then take out the blood clot, get the blood flowing, get him out of his comatic state and get him back to a state of consciousness and avert World War III. Mm -hmm. The process goes terribly wrong and the nanobots turn against the president's body and begin breaking it down at a cellular level. Oh, wow. So a team of Navy SEALs are hired and shrunk down. Michael Bean and Charlie Sheen. Okay, sure. <laughs> Why not, right? And they're injected into the bloodstream to A, first kill all the nanobots, okay. which there's got to be a bunch of them. Yeah. And then go get the blood clot as time is ticking because he's only got 17 hours of oxygen. And then, and there's things like nicotine tar traps. It sounds no, really no, sounds, good. Once Jesse. you get in the body, there's a lot of things you could go up against. Right. I like that. Yeah. I, and yeah. I'm not, I am not a fan of this genre, this story. I think yeah. it's sort of stupid, but yeah. I'm, I'm on board. Okay. One huge problem. Again, this, and the studio executive said the way we shrink the Navy SEALs down is ridiculous. Ridiculous. Fix it. Also, Dean Devlin and Roland Emmerich didn't buy it. So guess what? Here we go. Back to rewrite hell. Mm -hmm. So let's fix it. Uh, literally goes back to the drawing board and a new script is finished just as Emmerich and Devlin leave for Godzilla. Godzilla. <laughs> Whoops. Yeah, exactly. This is like repeating a pattern, isn't it? Exactly. Okay, so then another dude named Tab Murphy is hired to pen another draft with no talent as far as director or producer attached. Mm -hmm. um, he's chosen because he's writing another project for Emmerich and Devlin called Super Tanker, which is essentially a tank that is a natural disaster film, but that also gets killed because of 9-11. Okay. Um, lots of possibilities here. He finishes his draft, everyone hates it, so still no progress. Project dies again. Mm -hmm. I'm going to jump you all the way ahead to 2005. Okay. James Cameron is attached to direct. And he's like, I'm too busy with this other film that I have an idea on, which is Avatar. 10 years in production on that thing too. Wow. But as produ as producer, still going to put the pieces together. He calls Emmerich and says, hey man, why don't you come back and direct this film? I'll produce it. You direct it. I think we've got something here. And we're basically back to the Americans fighting the nanobots and then clearing the blood clot from the president's mind. Okay. Um, then guess what happens? And this isn't 9-11. The freaking writer's strike. I killed everything. So many projects. So many. I think a lot of good ones too. Probably bad ones we haven't heard of, but good ones. George Miller Justice League. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Damn. Yeah. Okay. Wow. By the time the writer's strike is over, Roland Emmerich has moved on to 2012 <laughs> and Cameron is full. Whoops. And All Cameron, over Avatar. You got it. Yep. Full on in the middle of blue boobs and Avatar. Yep. Don't even get me started on that film. Yeah. Are we ever going to, by the way, are we ever going to see the sequel to that? And does anyone want to? I think that's next December. Today. Yeah, today. <laughs> that movie, that's been in development hell forever. Yeah. Another Ryer is Hyder. This dude's name is Shane Salerno, who basically was known for this type of film. Armageddon <clears throat> is his. Okay. And ready for this? We're 2010 now. Paul Greengrass is attached right after Born 1 and 2. Mm. Okay. This movie might be really good. <laughs> Well, I wouldn't tell you the story if it got made. Yeah, uh, They're in discussions to direct and write. Greengrass can't come to an arrangement, mostly because they can't figure out the travel from Britain to here. Mm. I don't even know what that means. Like, I couldn't put him up. I don't, get him on a plane? His family? I don't know, Jesse. Like travel arrangements. Weird. Yep, very weird. So then the, po the, the project moves to Sean Levy. 
um, who had written Night at the Museum, Date Night, and Cheaper by the Dozen. He was attached to the Flash film for years. He passes on that to go do Real Steel. <laughs> Jesus. And thus ends our story. Fantastic Voyage ends a fantastic death. At the hands of real steel? And the directors passed on a fantastic idea to go do garbage films. As much as I don't want to see Smoke and Mirrors, because I think magicians are just silly. Yeah. I do actually want to see this version of Fantastic Voyage, because I think in a sub, in an unfamiliar place, fighting nanobots, now you've essentially created science fiction, like hard traditional science fiction. Interesting. But, all right. Last one. It's all yours. Oh, this is a lot of fun. So let's talk about maybe one of the most prolific filmmakers of the 20th century, Mr. Francis Ford Coppola. I've heard of him. Have you? <laughs> Remember him from films like Jack with Robin Williams and Bram Stoker's Dracula? <laughs> Do you hate Bram Stoker's Dracula? No, it's not terrible. Gary Oldman kills that. He's so good as Dracula. While you bring up that specific film boy mm -hmm. do we have a big announcement coming really soon for rye nation but not tonight not tonight it's maybe, called a tease maybe next week maybe if you're good yeah he's yeah he's done some pretty great films most notably godfather part one and two apocalypse now the conversation the guys made some films some epic films i want to say sure i think his passion project let's just call it that was this little film called megalopolis now that doesn't sound like a little film <laughs> based on the title <laughs> right. but it's something that he tried to develop between 1984 and 2005 and wow, he, 21 years mm -hmm. so he started with oh my god a 212 page screenplay that he started in 84 and inspired by dune yeah inspired by dune and he essentially, between 84 and hoping to get this made, he took a lot of mainstream directing jobs. And I can't even tell you some of the stuff he did in the 80s because it's so forgettable. But he was only doing it to get this made. It's so, like a favor system or creating a war chest of money or what? Maybe a little bit of both. Okay. Because I know he's he self-produced through American Zotrope that he produces a lot of his films, but also to kind of stay relevant in the game too okay and if i scratch this studio's back hopefully they'll scratch mine when it comes time to purchase this thing so to kind of give you a synopsis of megalopolis it's it kind of is involves a power struggle between a tortured architecture genius named sergey cataline and new york city mayor frank cicero both intent on rebuilding new york city or rather building an, an idyllic city within a city as a monument to themselves so very self-indulgent but he actually so I'm going to quote Coppola. He's like, I've taken a very famous and very mysterious incident in Roman history from the period of the Republic, not the Empire, called the Catalan Conspiracy. No one knows too much about it, but uh, Catalan, because uh, he was worried that people wouldn't take it seriously because the enemies uh, are the only ones that tell this story. So there's not like a real accurate portrayal of this particular event uh, because of the way it's told to ancestors and, and whatnot. So he wanted to set it in modern day New York because it's really, you know, a metaphor um, about, you know, walking around, you know, present day New York. And you could draw a lot of parallels to that uh, Roman Republic, which so he's drawing from history. And this is a very smart man. I don't think we're ever going to judge him on not being smart because of some of the films he's been able to put together and the ambition with them, too. So. The way just it's described and some of the art and stuff I've seen, it's very neo-noir like take the noirish futuristic elements of blade runner but then add the debauchery and the the just 
scum people of like Wolf of Wall Street and smash those two together. And I think this is the film that we're going to get. Okay. That's a nice pitch. I'm, I'm interested. <clears throat> Excellent. So he said it was something that was difficult to get feedback on because the sort of notes he would get were related to the financial and pop elements marketing. Mm-hmm. And so they wouldn't really give him feedback on how to like fix the screenplay. They just all accepted that it was very ambitious and that scared them considerably. Names like Russell Crowe, Nicolas Cage, Robert De Niro, Paul Newman, uh, Edie Falco, and Numa Thurman were attached to this project. Oh, what a cast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. This is... This has come up a lot on the on, on the podcast, but uh, Coppola shot a reported thirty hours of test footage in New York, um, hoping to kind of you know bump up this idea. But then September eleventh kind of killed this idea. He said it was it was going to be really hard to do a film about you know this this city kind of like rebuilding in this debaucherous way when this kind of horrendous event just happened. So that kind of killed it again, and he he tried to shop it around, but you know. He started getting older as a filmmaker and wasn't making as much things. But I heard recently, maybe as much as last year, that he still hopes to make this. I don't know. Like, maybe this is just a statement on directors that age. I want to look at, you know, Ridley Scott and Steven Spielberg, that once you get to a certain age, you kind of lose the mojo a little bit. Yeah. And the same just can, energy, man. It's yeah. just got to be you're out of energy because it's it's hard to make a film. And when you're doing yeah. something as ambitious as that, you're not as young as you were when you did Apocalypse Now. And we know how taxing that was for Coppola. So, I, so is the arc in that story kind of Citizen Kaney, like Charles Foster Kane? A little bit. That within sounds like, really good. Within like a metropolis, futuristic, like noir cityscape with like scum and prostitution and drug trade. It sounds cool. It sounds really cool. It and you, you can find this screenplay online and read it too, but I don't think this should be made. And if it is, maybe by a different director, but then, you know, who would that be? But he shouldn't be. He's almost 80. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's, he might be 80, actually. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of directors, you know, I've noticed it, especially with Spielberg and Scott, that whether it's Alien Covenant or what's that? All the money in the world or, you know, the Martian. And the Martian was okay. But like even Spielberg's stuff, like you kind of lose what made your prime so amazing. Right. So, yeah, they, yeah, 84 to present day, he's been thinking about that that's got to be hard you know especially when you do a film like the godfather you almost get a little carte blanche in hollywood to do whatever you want and when that kind of slowly fades away it becomes a little harder to get a film made you bring that up and it makes me think of closer Mm -hmm. so mike nichols essentially comeback feel from the graduate sure is closer and the previous oh hierarchy that loved the graduate still had enough power to green light closer. But I think people realize that there is a time span where just by name alone, you can get something greenlit. Like Christopher Nolan is that guy now. Big time. Anybody else that comes off the top of your head that you can say can just get something greenlit like on pitch alone. I don't know. Danny Villanueva is kind of, I think a little up there. Maybe I think still Fincher is still pretty relevant. The the, the, the Coen brothers. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. um, The Russo brothers, maybe. Maybe a little bit, yeah. I wouldn't even say there. Okay, so we have a very select few. Sure. Coppola was certainly that. Mm-hmm. Oliver Stone might have been that once upon a time. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he's that anymore. And you know what? And I, honest to God, and I, I did a lot of thinking about this this week. You know, my favorite Coppola film might be this. Is nothing against Godfather Part One and Two. It's Godfather Three. I'm kidding. 
Oh my God, no. I was about to dump this right on you. Now, it might be Apocalypse Now, and I, I hope we get to cover this on the podcast one day because I think that movie physically killed him internally. Like the story of making that and fighting with Brando and Sheen having a heart attack and it was two years in the typhoons and he, he literally says in the documentary, I thought about killing myself because like I just can't get this, I can't get this thing made. Wow. And he poured all his savings and his vineyard money and everything into this film. All his Godfather money went into that film. And I think, you know, that takes a lot out of you. For a masterpiece. Yeah. So he got good work out. He got good art out of it. Mm -hmm. But at what expense? At what cost? Exactly. So of all the films, here it is, of all the eight films now that, that we told the story about. of, can you give me the one you want to see the most and the one you want to see the least? Well, Smoke and Mirrors the least. Like, I'm with you. Like So we share that together. Dueling magician or magician Houdini story. Yeah, no part of it. That's not even the right Houdini. Exactly. Um... I might have to go crusade with with Verhoeven and Schwarzenegger just because them together was incredible already, and that idea sounds great. You and I both share the exact same front and back on this. Mm -hmm. The one, though, that I really find sort of guilty pleasure never happened that I want, dude, is Night Skies. Mm. I just want to see what those stupid names that he gave the aliens, what that would have been. Oh, yeah. Was it Spanky, Slappy, and Stan? It was like Corn Pop. Floopy, Gloop, and Slooper. <laughs> not right <laughs> yeah what could what, what could have been with that one but yeah it's, it's it's all very interesting i don't have as much stake in the halo franchise but i would go see a film like that but you put names like paul verhoven and schwarzenegger together and you call it the crusades like sign me up like okay. i want to go in a time machine and go back and find a way to get that made mm -hmm. that sounds awesome mm-hmm well, Matt, this has been a lot of fun. We might have to revisit this topic again and because there's a lot of like superhero films that we just totally glossed over, like that Superman Lives one, and there's a lot of like Fantastic Four idea, uh, James Cameron's Spider-Man that we could talk about, which could be a lot of fun. But even just, you know, the unmade Bond films or the unmade uh, Stanley Kubrick and this and that, there's if there's any plethora we could choose from. Well, the, the flip of that, yeah, the, I agree. The flip of that would also be the movies that almost never got out of development hell that we're grateful that they did or That'd that we wish they'd stayed in there. <laughs> the movies I wish we would that, that stayed dead. That would be a fun one. You and I have that conversation a lot off mic, which is mm -hmm. high concept, terrible execution. And we bring up the star chamber all the time. RIPD. Right. Yeah. Sold on name alone. Men in black and hell. Oh yeah. How does that movie suck? Like that's, that's such a great idea. How does that movie suck? Well, this has been fun. Cheers, Matt. Cheers, Jesse. And we'll see you all soon. Take care, everybody.